Greetings from Lord of Life Lutheran Church in Columbus, Ohio, where we proclaim God's extravagant grace, radical inclusion, and relentless compassion. You are listening to the second in a pair of bonus podcast episodes that we are very excited to share with you. On November 14, 2015, our leadership support team hosted our third Servant Leader Workshop, featuring guest speaker Dr. Rick Barger, who is the president of Trinity Lutheran Seminary. This bonus podcast episode is the second half of that workshop. For more information on our community, visit our website, www.acceptingall.com. Okay. Um, uh, I realize that the slides and things that I have are kind of placeholders for me to say things. Uh, and a visual, people learn differently. Um, but I am, uh, will send this to Jen and Pastor Jim. Uh, y'all can have it as long as I, as long as you don't use it and uh, uh, claim uh, credit for it, and as long as you don't insert heresy in it and then say that I did it. Okay, so those are those are those are the things. Okay, uh, seeing shaping the future part two, shaping your ministry's future uh, in God's. Uh, if we could have a little bit more light down, that would probably be good. I see this is kind of difficult on this slide. All right, uh, shaping your ministry's future in God's. We the first part was saying that God has a future for us. Uh, that that our uh, basically our faith is about the future. Uh, 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 this is this is uh, the uniqueness of the Judean Christian uh, insight that until uh, uh, the call of Abraham. Uh, Ancient Near East religions, very much like all the religions in the world, saw the world as being cyclical. It'd be the rainy season, the dry season, the time to plant, the time to sow. And so religion that was born out of that uh, was religion uh, in order to entice the gods to make it rain when it was supposed to rain, make the crops come, uh uh, and then you started getting into child sacrifice and all these awful things that we thought that if the sacrifice could just be, you know, gory enough that it might buy God off uh, uh, to, to, to treat you with favor or protect you. Uh, and um, uh, the insight into all of this was with the call of Abraham was the awareness, Yahwehism, is that no... Uh, Life is not cyclical, even though we do have seasons, but life is uh, has a purpose, that it has a trajectory, it has a telos, that there's a sense of history, that there's a sen- sense of a God who who moves it. Uh, and, so, um, uh, uh, and so moving us towards a future. And so this is about now then how do we shape what we do as a church uh, with God's future in mind. Um, I want to throw a word at you, uh, prolepsis. Um, um, so um, uh, I know that, uh, uh, um, what's your daughter's name that went to the University of North Carolina? Okay, I'll send Elise an uh, email explaining her what prolepsis means. Uh, uh, so anyway, uh, <laughs> uh but uh, it, it is a it is a theological used used as a theological term. Uh, does anybody know what prolepsis means? 
Mr. Cameron. Anticipate the future that is already breaking into the now. Okay, that's really good. So it's the representation of something as existing before it actually does. Mary is as good as dead, even though she isn't. Uh, uh, the representation of something as existing. Participating in the future as if it is already happening. Very important uh, to remember. So the church is called to live proleptically. So we participate in life and in this world while already knowing the outcome. That's who we are. This is not static, cyclical life. It has a trajectory and a purpose, a telos. Because uh, the tomb is empty, we participate in the plot of our lives and history Differently. Um, your pastor and I uh, have been shaped by a man by the name of Walter Bowman. And Walter Bowman, my mentor, my friend, who died in 2005, loves mystery novels. But the way he would read mystery novels is he would read the last chapter first. And it would, it would change how he would participate in reading the book. Now, when so-and-so got into trouble, then he wouldn't stress out and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's kind of like when you DVR a football game that's really important to you, and you want to watch it as if it's live, and then somebody calls you on the phone and tells you the score. You know, it changes how you watch the game. That if you know that you already won, you don't get all stressed out at the bad ref call. Uh, you don't get all stressed out because of the fumble and stuff or whatever happened. You, you know. So because the tomb is empty, uh, because this great big stone symbolizing so much has been rolled away and the tomb is empty, and that God has already overcome, uh, it changes how we participate in life, how we handle adversity. Uh, that our adversity is not bad, it's just the great teacher. Adversity is the great teacher. We learn so much through adversity uh, than we do when everything's just all wonderful. Uh, and it, it, it's the same with preachers. Uh, I do not trust somebody to tell me, stand up and tell me about Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, about the gospel, if... They haven't ever experienced adversity. Up to that point, it's just theory. It's just something in a book. Uh, Mark Twain, I think, is the one who said the person who holds a cat by the tail and hangs on upside down gets a hundred times more information about that experience than the person who read about it in the book. So <laughs> it's, it's... I want somebody who has had to deal with, with, with the stuff of life of cancer, of betrayal, of loss, of losing people, of financial challenges, of, of problems with the... Ch I want people who have had to deal with that, uh, live through it, to stand up and tell me about Jesus. Uh, but we participate in, in the plot of life differently and in history differently because we know the outcome. Uh, so as a church, we already do this all the time.
uh, these are proleptic things that we do. Our sacraments, baptism. It's prolapses. Uh, bringing in, uh, particularly infant baptism, you bring an infant to the font. Uh, child of God, you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit and marked with the cross of Christ forever. You've been given a name, you claimed uh, uh, all this, uh, even before your life ever unfolds. This is why Paul writes, you know, inasmuch as you have been baptized into Christ, you've been baptized into Christ's death, just as Christ has been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, you too might walk in newness of life. That um, uh, our theology says in baptism you really died, even though you didn't. But proleptically you did, because we all die. Death rates one death per person. And we die, uh, and yet uh, God raises us up. Uh, in baptism, then, imagine... This is what we're called to do, to live the rest of our... I mean, this is radical. There's nothing in baptism that says uh, this is a temporary uh, deal that God makes with you until you mess up. Uh, this is a temporary... This is why all the stuff and, and just distractions over human sexuality. I've walked... I mean, I've carried multiple babies. Uh, we had, ba you know... Uh, uh, at Abiding Hope Lutheran Church, Littleton, Colorado, the average age of our congregation was three. I mean, we had baptisms <laughs> every day. We, you know, we'd have a hundred people come up for children's sermons. Anyway, all this stuff. And uh, 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 carry a baby around. And, and the congregation would say, you know, we welcome you to the Lord's family. We receive you as a fellow member of the body of Christ, child of the same Heavenly Father. Work with us in the kingdom of God. We don't say, and when you get to be 13 years old, if you discover that your sexual orientation might not be, you know, mainstream, that this promise is off. We don't say that. We claim the child right there, make the statement, there it is, over and done with. Uh, this is who we are, and it's amazing that God already has promised us for our life even unfolds. You know, and... Uh, uh, we all mess up. Very important for our teenagers to understand. You know, uh, uh, God loves you. I might be working on it, but God loves you. Uh, and and uh, 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 <laughs> and that there's not one thing you can do. God says to make me love you any more, or make you love me any less. And this is what baptism is. Uh, it's participation in the future. Uh, Eucharist this is what it's all about. It's all about the future. The bread and wine are relics from the future. We step into the future when we celebrate the Eucharist. Uh, all of us understand Thanksgiving dinner is coming, you know, in a couple of weeks, right? Or what do you do at your house uh, when, uh, you know, well, we're going to serve dinner at 1 o'clock and 1 o'clock comes. How many of you actually have dinner on the table at 1 o'clock? <laughs> you don't. But what happens? You smell the turkey, the dressing, and all this kind of stuff, and you start... Picking at it. And and you do all of this, which is what we're doing at Eucharist. We're picking at the meal, this little crumb and this sip of wine. Uh, on this mountain, the Lord of hosts makes a feast for all people. And it's a stepping into the future. This is why when the early church gathered in, uh, as an infant church, the Eucharist is what defined them, gave them their identity, is who it is that, that they are. And as much as you eat of this bread and drink of this wine, you proclaim the Lord's death and resurrection until he comes. This is what separated church from synagogue. When you go to synagogue, a lot of great stuff happens. But Eucharist is what makes us church. Uh, the Word. I mean, the reason the Scriptures are written uh, and the stories of Jesus and the, and the uh, uh, letters are all to point us towards an alternative future. It's not to give us a history lesson. 
It's to, it's to empower us to live differently. And sermons should do that. It should free us from the past uh, and, and then uh, stop us from stressing out over the future. The Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's a future prayer. It's a kingdom prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, I'm going to do the traditional version, uh, hallowed be your name, uh, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today daily bread. Uh, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Save us from the time of trial. Uh, 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 and, you know, only those who have been who have been grasped by the vision of the kingdom can really be tempted. Um, uh, because we've got something to be tempted away from, to not trust in this. But if, if, if as, as Isaiah 25 says, and as Revelation 21 says, and I saw a new heaven and a new earth, uh, and I saw, uh, what happens in that? God comes, you know, uh, we beam up a bunch of people, beam them up, Scotty, and God destroys the rest. Is that what happens in Revelation 21? Or does it say what happens? God the, Jesus comes down. As, as a bridegroom and lives among us and, and I'll be your God and you'll be my people and I'll wipe away tears from every eye um, that this is what we have and so um, the Jesus prayer of, of forgiveness that, that is a sign of what's promised if we don't believe that, that ultimately forgiveness uh, is a reality for all people, then we'll just hold grudges the rest of our lives. We'll just let what that person did to us be like a carcinoma of the soul, and we'll stew over it, and we'll tell everybody about it, and we'll, every time we meet and go for a walk, we'll say, do you know what she did? And and But if we forgive, we forgive. forgiveness is not about you know somebody else. It's about us, so that we can be free to live. Uh, so the Jesus prayer. Uh, you know, you have Stephen's ministry here, healing ministries, because healing is a sign of the kingdom. Is what we do. This is really important. A mission and justice. Um, churches don't participate in charity. I hate the word charity. Hate it. Um, uh, Pastor Jim talked about uh, going to Haiti, uh, and uh, that's a big part of our lives. Uh, but uh, when we do uh, work in Haiti, we don't do it and take groups down there and so, you know, bored North Americans can do something meaningful with their life for a week. We go down there because God says, I'll take away the disgrace from all the people. No more hunger. No more thirst. And if that's true, let's get on with it. Let's walk with as true servant leaders and believe in. So this is how the church lives proleptically. So shaping ministry proleptically. When it comes to mission, almost all congregations are stuck because of fear, decline, gridlock, self-preservation in asking the wrong questions. How can we get more people? That's a terrible question. Uh, when I was a pastor and we were growing, people would come up to me and say, well, Pastor Rick, how big are we going to be? And I would say, that's none of your business. <laughs> that's God's business. God grows the church. We don't. Sower goes out to seed. Does sow seed. Uh, have you ever stood over a seed and said, come on, uh, uh, 
Uh, how can we get more people? Um, uh, how can we get more youth? Uh, how can we get more people to give or give more? Uh, how can we, what are other wrong questions? How can we answer for me? Okay, all right. All right. <laughs> so reality, just another reality with this, is Worthington and the Columbus area do not need another church. You driven around here? You know how many Lutheran congregations there are in this area? Um, uh, there's plenty. And they have plenty of empty seats. So we don't need another church. So if you're going to have one, there better be a good reason. Uh, so something to ponder. If Lord of Life decided to close, who would grieve? I hope there would be a cry throughout Egypt, Worthington, because you matter to so much many people to take you out of this. Um, so shaping ministry to God's future, three moves. Um, from inward focus to outward focus. Jesus is always outwardly focused. Jesus was not, not a navel gazer. Jesus did not get the twelve and all the people, disciples. You, you need to understand disciples in, in, in uh, some of the Gospels are the twelve. In Luke's Gospel, I mean, disciples are the followers of Jesus. But Luke's, Luke's Gospel is really careful to distinguishing between uh, disciples, which is all people, and apostles, which is the twelve. So Jesus has all kinds of disciples. Uh, so from inward focus to outward focus. It's not about us. You know, it's not about me. From investing in programs to investing in people. Servant leadership. Investing in people and lifting them up. Uh, uh, and last is from church focus to kingdom focus. God does not call us to build a great church. God does call us to be part in creating a great world. Those are two entirely different things. So how do we shape what we do for those kind of outcomes to bring people along rather than just doing programs? Um, so these are moves. So the right questions are, why Lord of Life? Why were you placed here? For what purpose? There's a good reason. What is God's call on this congregation? Has God placed something in front of you that matters more than anything in the world to which you're to give your attention? Um, I mean, I have a short list of things for suburban congregations. What is the ache in God's heart with which you can align? Every time one of our teenagers goes into a room and cuts the, closes the door and starts cutting herself because she hates herself, having everything she could possibly need and not what she uh, uh, um, actually needs, uh, I think God's heart just breaks. Uh, our children, if they put on my tombstone and cared about kids, it would be the highest compliment I could ever get. But our children uh, are, are taking their lives at epidemic proportions. In the most affluent country in the world. What in the world is going on? Why are we doing that? Um, uh, what's, what's the ache in God's heart? Uh, you know, homelessness in the city of Columbus. And, you know, Harriet and I, we live right along Alum Creek with the groundhogs and the, and the deer <laughs> and all of this. Uh, 
Uh, Harriet has a running battle with her garden and the deer and the groundhogs, uh, and every once in a while a raccoon. Uh, um, but, you know, we back up to Allen Creek. It's a, it's a seminary-owned house, and there's homeless people that live down there in the woods. Um, what's the ache in God's heart? And what is the ache in God's heart when people don't really understand that God is love, not hate? Because anything hate can do, love can do better. Anything that a grudge can do, forgiveness can do better. Anything that greed does, generosity can do better. So what's the ache in God's heart? And what is God up to already? You can get in on. Why is the church just flourishing in India and China? Why are people just flocking um, uh, to those? Because they see what God's up to, that there's a new, it's more distinct, and they see what God is up to, and they want to get in on this parade. Uh, at a body couple of church in Littleton, Colorado, had a guy by the name of Brother Titus. He still he was involved in an awful accident. He came to us and said, "If you uh, had a relationship with 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 India, in the lower India, and he he said you need to help me start Abiding Hope Lutheran Church in the uh, lower India." And he said, "If you'll help me do this, I'll promise you, uh, in ten years we'll have ten congregations." We think, get out of town. Okay, I don't know how many he has right now, but he has seven, last time I checked, of people just flocking. So, and and how, how, can, how can we, how can you make God proud? When Jesus came up out of the water after being baptized, ah, you're my son, I love you, you're the pride of my life. How do we make God proud? I know we don't make God proud when we have all these weapons of mass distraction in our church, arguing over human sexuality, arguing over whether we're going to have communion with Episcopals or not, arguing over majoring in the minors and all this kind of stuff, and arguing over the fact that we don't have enough money to support our camps and to support our campus ministry. we got more money we know what to do with. It's just in the wrong pocket. Uh, uh, we, we, we... so, I mean, those are, how do we make God proud uh, to do that? So those are the questions. Um, I say I have time. I was going to skip over this if I didn't. I want to give you the power of vision. Habakkuk, a 2, 2 to 3, just as an example, is about write the vision, see it and write it. Uh, so I want to share with you um, a story from Haiti, if I may. I think I'm running out of batteries. Um, in the central plateau of Haiti are the poorest people on the planet. And there was a question that was asked in um, the, about 2005 uh, by the Grameen Bank in Bangladesh, can we eradicate ultra-poverty? Now, You probably have all heard of microfinance, which is how we take uh, people who are in abject poverty and through small loans and consortiums, we get them uh, to uh, sustainability. But we're talking about people who have nothing. 
And in the central plateau of Haiti, uh, Evan has been there. Uh, in the central plateau of Haiti, in fact, I'm taking seminary students down there in January. Uh, in the central plateau of Haiti, we think we have 17 families like Marie and her children. Um, as a typical family, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to uh, um, talk about somebody who's not in the room, so I'm going to talk generically because um, I, I believe in respecting people's dignity. But the typical mother with children, um, first of all, uh, when, when we, there's, we have a project that we did, a, uh, uh, a phone call say, the Bank of the Poor, which we now align with and support, uh, did a pilot project called Shemin Lavi Mio, Path to Better Life. And the, uh, uh, the idea was, can we eradicate ultra-poverty? Uh, in 2007, the uh, Pan American Health Organization went to Haiti to do a census. Um, uh, and uh, uh, at that time, uh, we were trying to, the Haitian T-Moon Foundation was trying to vaccinate um, every uh, child uh, from preventable diseases. We were able to get the syringes. We were able to get a drug company to, to do the drugs, uh, but there was no delivery system to, to do it, um, and it sort of stopped. We were in support of the Pan American Health Organization. Um, but they started going around village to village to village uh, doing a census to count people. And they would go into these villages, and they, will, they would count, and they would say, what about that family right down there uh, behind those living in uh, those bushes? And the response would be, well, they don't count. They don't count because they generally didn't have any clothes, had no means to live uh, except the mother uh, working herself as a sharecropper a couple of days a week, picking corn and being able to give it two ears of corn, or the mother selling her body to a despicable person for 70 good a night to get money. In Haiti, 45 goods equals a dollar. You can do the math. Um, and um, so the typical... Uh, and so they would say they don't count. Of course, they do count. They count with God. There's a Haitian uh, folk song among the poor that that goes like this in English. You know, we know you see us and you see our poverty and you see our shame and you think we're just animals, but we're children of God. Just give us a chance. Just give us a chance and watch what we can do. So the idea is 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 this... Typical family uh, would be that, you know, the mother has already lost a child or two to starvation uh, uh, to because there's no clean water in Haiti uh, to disease uh, because drinking contaminated water. And there's pretty good chance that the mother has already, because of having watched a child die of starvation, uh, uh, is that the mother has given up a child or two to international child traffickers. Um, uh, because the rest of that system in Haiti is pretty prevalent. So the, the question, we did, there was a pilot project, and the question is, can we eradicate poverty? And so when you go in and talk to uh, somebody like Marie, who lived in that situation, uh, not having a house, uh, being a tarp, and living in just absolute ultra-poverty, she has been told her whole life, you're no good, you have no value, you're just trash, you're just dirt, ostracized, nobody would look, look them in the eye, nothing, shame, wouldn't, won't even look, 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 look you in the eye coming up. 
and to say, we have a way for you to get out of this. If you can just see the future and be willing to get there. And the first ones were hard because they couldn't see it. But now that they've seen others do it, um, we do launch a hundred at a time because of scale. But over an 18 month period, um, this, this family, uh, is brought, uh, uh, to a path to a better life. And at the end of 18 months, uh, through a caseworker model, through first, uh, giving them materials to build their own house, um, uh, they don't build it. We don't build it. They build it because the mission is hope and sustainability with dignity, no handouts. Um, um, first, next thing we do is put a water filtration system in. Um, next thing we do is put a sanitized latrine in so they're, they're, how they, you know, human waste doesn't go into the water system, into the plants and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we come in and teach the mother how to write her name, uh, some basic business skills, uh, we start out on a little stipend and wean them off, and about six weeks in, there's an asset transfer where they get to choose either goats, chickens, pigs, or merchandise. And uh, the reason we do two is the pilot project. We only did one, and when a disease wipes out the chickens or a hurricane wipes out the merchandise, then we're back to square one. So we want to have a fail-safe. Uh, and then um, uh, uh, well, over this caseworker model, over an eight-month period of time with empowerment, uh, uh, she begins to start having an income and starts having money in the bank. She starts being able, she put she clothing for her children and then ends up putting her children into school. That's a big deal because, you know, uh, 40-something percent of all Haitian children never see the inside of a school. Uh, and those who do, only one out of 128 ever graduate from high school. So, uh, puts them in school, and by the end of the eight month, 18 month period of time, uh, we have 14 metrics that you have to satisfy completely, uh, and you graduate. Um, uh, and uh, now you're in the game. You are sustainable. Uh, and right now, uh, we have been getting. We have about uh, we have about 2,500 families that are in process right now. We've completed about 5,500. We think we're not done till we get to 17,000. Uh, and uh, our graduation rate is 96%. And if they don't graduate, it doesn't mean that we're done. It means that you just take longer. Now we have some deaths and some other things like that. But the point that I'm telling you this is that they were able to see an alternative future. They refused. Ultimately, there was a transformation when they refused to hear the people who told them they don't have any value and they're no good and they're just dirt and they're just trash, they refused to finally listen to that and to be shown that you don't have to be this way anymore. Uh, if you were to go to our website, uh, the Haitian Two Moon Foundation's website, www.htflive.org, uh, or, excuse me, to our, just go to our Facebook page, Haitian Two Moon Foundation, you'll find it, T-I-M-O-U-N, which means children. Uh, you'll see videos of graduation and watch these women just stand up and look you in the eye because they've got no, no, no uh, Evan, tell them about it. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I think the most, what I would talk about, the most amazing thing is what I witnessed. So there's a caseworker who's assigned to 10 families. Is yeah, yeah, to 25 families. 25, okay. And so you have to understand that there are no roads. Um, 
and not even like dirt. And so these caseworkers have these little mopeds, and they spend their entire week driving from family to family to family across these great distances, and and they're walking with these people um, who have never had anyone walk with them before. And, and I think these caseworkers are the closest thing I've seen to, to angels. Is my just there? I mean, this little moped going through basically jungle territory and just amazing faithfulness um, walking with these people is, is really moving. Yeah. Serpent leader. Two serpent leaders. To go wash the feet of the poor. So two summers ago, Harriet and I delivered goats to them. Uh, and uh, the caseworkers are hardcore. You've got to have a protection. You've got to have a fence up if you're going to get these goats. So we go up to a home and the woman has not the mother has not finished what she's supposed to do. We take the goats. We don't leave them with her. Uh, it's hardcore training to, to, for you to stand up on your own. Uh, but if you go look at a graduation exercise, I mean, it is on website. I mean, you've got phone calls, they workers where they line up, they go out, put makeup on them, put jewelry on them. Um, uh, they, they walk five, seven miles uh, carrying their Sunday clothes in a bag, go down the river and bathe, put it on, and they're so proud. But it's because they saw the future, believed in an alternative future, and because they could see, then they could move towards that, which is what servant leadership in imagining an alternative. Um, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in the, the, the last thing that I want to say to you about this uh, is that this day in which we've gathered here uh, in this holy space is not a dress rehearsal. Every day we get up in the morning, this day that God gives to us is not a dress rehearsal for something yet to come. It is the real deal. And we have a choice every day. Do we believe the promises of God that the one who has promised is faithful of how we're going to encounter that day? Um, uh, or do we just muddle through another day and, and, it, and it ends and we haven't lived as, as Jesus would call us to live? Um, when we as a congregation, and I say we because I'm part, think like Jesus, love and serve like Jesus, and act like Jesus, we honor our name that we are Lord of life. That's all I got for you, questions and answers. I want to throw out one question right now. Uh, a couple of Senate assemblies ago, you called me out for not understanding the word ne- necro, something or other. Necrotic. Necrotic, which means all you're doing is focusing on dying. Yeah, yeah. You talked about that sports thing about seeing the end of a game. I've noticed to myself that, you know, one says, well, if I know that we won the game, you're right, I, I, I watch it differently. If I know I've lost, then I bitch about the referees, <laughs> the other team. There's something really huge about knowing that you've won. I've mm-hmm. seen that, that future. Um, in your vast experience in church, what, what are some of those other story, necrotic things that we fall back to in the church? I mean, how, what, what are some of those? Ethic of scarcity. Yeah. There's not uh, enough. Uh, there's not enough. A failure to step out and do what we know, what God wants us to do. Uh, because A, uh, we're afraid of offending somebody. Jesus was really worried about offending people. <laughs> um, 
Uh, I mean, if you're going to be an adaptive, if you're going to be a leader like Jesus, a leader like Dr. King, a leader like Galileo, I mean, you, that, 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 that we die. See, this is, a, this is why being in a affluent suburbia where, where Lord of Life is located is so critical. Because we have people who every day they live uh, what uh, Walt Whitman called lives of quiet desperation. They got everything they could possibly want, but not what they need. And um, uh, uh, they're, they're gridlocked by fear uh, of not knowing uh, what and how to be. And the fear of what other people are going to think. Uh, the fear, uh, I got to please other people. Uh, this dance that we do of, of we think that life is about how many toys we have and how big our house is and, and all this kind of stuff. And I was telling the group up in the mountains, I, I got the privilege of, of, of speaking uh, to the whole national network of, of Lutheran Outdoor Ministries leaders uh, uh, the, earlier this week. And, and I was telling them about research when I was doing doctoral work after Columbine. That before Columbine, uh, on new member classes, I was doing research. And I would say, uh, 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 tell me what you, your greatest fear is. And what do you think the number one fear is? Fear of failure. Fear of failure. Fall, 1999, after Columbine High School, huge membership class. Um, Gave the same test, survey. What do you think they then put down as their greatest fear? Fear of failure. Uh, not death, harm to a child, not violence, fear of failure. We are so worried about and how we define failure. I mean, what is it? Uh, I mean, Jesus was a total failure. I mean, look at it. I mean... He couldn't even get a church started. Uh, biggest he got it was 12, and one of them left. Uh, so, uh, terrible model of how to do a mega church. Uh, uh, and, and then they turned on him and, and left him and abandoned him. Um, imagine Pastor Jim showing up in the morning and nobody's here because we all abandoned. Uh, uh, I know <laughs> in, in Littleton, one, we had a, because of kickoff capital campaign, we had worship services to a place 20 miles away where we could get everybody in at one time. And, you know, so people who were used to us parking all in their neighborhoods and stuff like that, you know, get up one Sunday, there's nobody there. And the, it's like, God, don't tell us that he took the Lutherans first. Uh, so, uh, uh, but what, what I see is dying is a lack of courage, a lack of stepping out in what it is. If God has laid something on us, let's get on with it. I've never seen, you know, we let money and the earthly things, the, the, uh, I believe that people will always give to vision and mission, always give to something that matters. That our problem is not the absence of resources, our problem is with the delivery system and that we're too afraid to ask for it. Uh, that's my take. Um, and the other thing about necrotic is apathy. You know, I don't think that heresy will kill the church. I think apathy does. Just don't care. You know, average giving in a Lutheran congregation is 2.2%. Um, 
Do y'all know the uh, uh, Twyla Paris song, Lord, I offer my life to you, everything? I've thought that maybe in Lutheran congregations we ought to put in our offertory when people bring up the offering is, Lord, I'll offer my 2.2% to you, 2.2% to you. Use it for your glory. Uh, so, I mean, those are the kinds of things that I think are necrotic, um, that we, we let fear and, and disillusionment rather than boldness uh, guide what it is that, that we do. Uh, do, do you think, I mean, okay, others? Other questions? Other questions? Oh, yeah, I have one. Yes. Uh, going back to your um, your work in Haiti, I know that as a kid and, and seeing some kids grow up, you only have to say one or two negative things about to them, and it drags them down. Mm-hmm. So how do you go to a place like that where that's all they hear and and get them to understand that there's... That's our job, Amy. Uh, We have our partners tell us, your money means a lot to us, but that you have our backs. We we have a summer camp we do in Jock Mail every summer. Take 50 to 60 high school and college kids down there to do it. Uh, Work with Haitians. We work with a whole team of about 40 Haitians with us. Uh, To the children of Jock Mail, Haiti, we started it the summer after the earthquake to tell the children, we haven't forgotten about you. Uh, we, we got your backs. We're always going to be here. Uh, and uh, we get them, and it's just like going to Camp uh, Moana or something. I mean, we do all the songs and uh, all that kind of stuff. We have some songs in Creole. We have a lot of songs in English that they know that, that we teach them. And um, our job is to constantly, constantly remind them. I mean, we have uh, facilities with uh, uh, physically and, and mentally challenged children that were thrown away. They've never, they, until, until they came into the home, they'd never been hugged. Never been hugged. Never had somebody look at them in the eyes and say, I love you, you've got value, you're special. Um, it makes all the difference in the world. I mean, this is what God says to us in the Eucharist. You know, the body of Christ given for you. You don't receive that and say, well, that was helpful information. (laughs) Uh, It it has an impact. Uh, I mean, when Harriet tells me, you know, Rick, I love you, um, I don't say, well, you know, that that was very helpful. Uh, It it changes me. And so words, uh, when somebody says sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me, that's just simply, that's, that's a lie. This is not true. Other questions? I'm running way over. Anybody else? Just thank you. Let's do that. Rick, one thing for me. Okay. There's so many different ministries related here, and I just would like to take it one step personally for you. Is it? Knowing that the kingdom of God is secure through Christ's resurrection from the tomb, what does that mean for what you do in your ministry at Love Lecture? That that it doesn't depend on you because it's already resolved through Christ. But the question: How do we take this now into our each individual ministry and say, "This is where the kingdom of God becomes real with what I'm doing," and I want to help other people experience that. And I, I just want to give a couple of things for me to say. Uh, I, I got to run down to first English right after I got my arm out of the sling. 
and to see um, our members sitting with people and eating with people. Very different than feeding them. Very different. Talking and hugging and knowing each other's names because they've been there before dramatically changed how so we did first things. Dramatically. When I went to Sunday school class in another church and I watched kids be dragged into Sunday school, literally screaming. And I realized that at Order of Life today, everybody's wearing their super costumes and they can't wait to get there. (laughs) To discover what their superpower is because it's Jesus. Like transformed and how thankful I am for what that ministry is. Um, That we don't have a stewardship committee, we have a generosity team. Mm -hmm. Because we're not trying to raise money, we're trying to be generous people in the world. Because that's where our life is, that's what Jesus does for us. There's some transforming things. So I I hope you'll take with you is to say, how does this sure and certain hope that I have in Christ, how does it inform and shape what I think the future is? And and what, what if I couldn't fail? What if I tried something for Jesus and I couldn't fail? And I think it's big. I mean, it's really, really, really big for you. I want to thank you. We uh, decided a little powwow a while ago that we wouldn't run to the other room and do rah-rah things this time. What we said we'd do is we're going to uh, sing kumbaya. We're going to invite Jesus into our heart. We are going to be glad uh, to, to just hang and be with each other. But we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna close this prayer. Uh, and we're just going to be thankful that we were all here today. And tomorrow, what um, big time advertising. My hunch is you'd probably want to come tomorrow to hear a guest preacher that we have. Uh, he's probably going to bring a word of hope. Um, and he's probably going to smile when he comes around a sacrament. Um, and he's probably going to be glad to be among people who hold a vision of what God is doing in the world. Uh, so I, I hope you'll join us tomorrow uh, to be as we as we gather around the Word. I understand that there are going to be appetizers served. Uh, everybody's going to get a little piece of bread and some wine. <laughs> we hope it'll hold you over to that day when there's a big feast. Uh, why don't you just, if you could, reach around the, the table and hold hands. The peace of the Lord be with you all. And also with you. Gracious mighty God, how good it feels to know that the future is in your hands. For there is no one more gracious and loving than you. How good it is to know that you'll be the one that comes to judge the world in your mercy and your grace. How good it is to know that, yes, you died, yes, you rose, but you will come again. How wonderful it feels that there will be a feast on a mountaintop and that you've given us a vision of that great day. Bless each one of us as we serve in your kingdom. Help us to hold to the hope that is ours. In the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Amen. Thanks, everybody, for being here.